This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive, On the Media, The Young Turks, Citizen Radio, The Black Agenda Report, and The Show. And a note for those of you listening who work at the NSA, I just want to say that I personally think you're doing a bang-up job and that you're looking great, I must say. You look like you've lost some weight, and I love what you've done with your hair. So did you spend any time reading or sending any email today? Did you Google anything? Did you check your account on Gmail or maybe Yahoo? You were not alone. We begin tonight with breaking news. The Washington Post and The Guardian newspaper tonight reporting on the existing of a previously unreported top-secret government spying program. The National Security Administration and the FBI reportedly tapping directly into the servers of the biggest internet companies in the world, essentially putting government taps deep inside the machinery that hosts hundreds of millions of American email accounts and online storage and social media and communications. If this sounds familiar, you're mistaken. This is new. This new secret spying program is entirely different, for example, from the phone record spying program that was revealed last night by The Guardian, a program that has the government storing records of past phone calls, allowing intelligence to go back to that data and mine through it at a later date. We're going to have more on the latest details about that program, the phone program, in just a little bit. But on the computer spying, the story breaking tonight, The Guardian and The Washington Post both reporting tonight that the National Security Agency and the FBI are tapping directly in to the central servers of nine different U.S. Internet companies. Big, big names in American computing, including Google and Yahoo, like I just mentioned. Also, Microsoft, who was apparently first in in the program, and Facebook and AOL and Skype and YouTube and Apple and something called PalTalk. I was not previously familiar with PalTalk. It is a smaller company that's important in the Middle East. It carries a lot of Internet traffic in Syria, apparently, and it has been particularly vital as a communications medium during the Arab Spring. Of the companies named in these NSA documents published by the Post and the Guardian, so far, by our accounting, five of these big companies that are named in the documents have issued statements tonight denying that they participate in this program, saying that they do not provide the government direct access or some sort of secret backdoor to their servers. Nevertheless, the NSA says they're in. Both papers were apparently given access to what seems to be the same document or at least a similar document. It appears to be a PowerPoint slideshow that was used to train intelligence operatives on the capabilities of this computer program, which is called PRISM. PRISM reportedly allows officials to monitor not just email traffic in real time, but also search histories and file transfers and live chats. NBC News has confirmed uh, the existence of the program, and as elaboration, uh, one source um, is describing this real-time monitoring of computer traffic as the equivalent of standing in the post office and watching for specific envelopes that come from parts of the world or from people that are deemed possible troublemakers. Sources also telling NBC News that the surveillance is mainly oriented toward communications that originate outside the U.S. or that involve communications from the U.S. to a foreign country. Keyword there probably is mainly oriented. Either way, uh, the program is, is, is one that American intelligence is relying upon with greater frequency. Uh, the Post got its hand on an internal NSA report that describes the new tool as the most prolific contributor to the president's daily brief. 
citing PRISM data in nearly 1,500 articles last year. The Guardian reports that more than 77,000 intelligence reports in total have cited PRISM the PRISM program as a source since the data collection began in this program in December 2007. Over 2,000 PRISM-based reports now issued every month. One career intelligence officer apparently considers how this intelligence was obtained to be a gross invasion of privacy and therefore worth revealing to the world at large. Quoting from the very end of the Washington Post's report tonight, first-hand experience with these systems and horror at their capabilities is what drove a career intelligence officer to provide these PowerPoint slides about PRISM and supporting materials to the Washington Post in order to expose what he believes to be a gross intrusion of privacy. They quite literally can watch your ideas form as you type, the officer said. Another day, another civil liberties violation by the Obama administration. The news that the government's been tracking our emails, photos, and videos on Facebook and YouTube and grabbing all sorts of our information from Google and Apple and Skype should concern us all. We're supposed to have a Fourth Amendment right to be secure in our persons, houses, papers, and effects. But we aren't anymore. Not at all. You can kiss the Fourth Amendment goodbye. And this is no accident. This was the very predictable consequence of the USA Patriot Act. In fact, Russ Feingold predicted it when he was the sole senator to vote against the Patriot Act back in October 2001. Here's part of what he said on the Senate floor back then. There is no doubt if we lived in a police state, it would be easier to catch terrorists. If we lived in a country where the government is entitled to open your mail, eavesdrop on your phone conversations, or intercept your email communications, the government would probably discover and arrest more terrorists or would-be terrorists. But that country wouldn't be America, he said. Well, it isn't America anymore. It's a different, much less free country. And the only way we can get some of the old America back is by repealing the freedom-stealing provisions of the USA Patriot Act and prohibiting this widespread snooping on innocent citizens. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. What the fuck they looking at? Guys behind my back. Yeah. I'm just an ordinary guy with an act to kick a rap. Wondering why they want to have that information on me. What I buy at Lucky's? Is it really exciting? No. I'm fighting my way through the camera lace door. And when I purchase something, they want to know more. But what for, man? I'm talking Radio Shack. The good guys, it's all bad. They create a stack of file. I want a while, but I'll settle for the discount. Shit's bound to come back, though. Since Thursday, a cascade of revelations confirmed what most of us really already kind of knew but preferred not to dwell on, that our government has access to records about our phone calls and our credit card purchases, as well as the emails, online photos, file transfers, chats, and, well, who knows what else of foreigners. 
After the British Guardian newspaper printed a leaked document showing that the U.S. National Security Agency had regular access to the phone records of millions of Verizon customers, WNYC's Brian Lehrer show took some calls. Lamar in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hello. Good morning to both of you. I don't understand what the concern is when we never hear any of your guests reference the fact that this country is at war. And therefore, these intrusive security measures are necessary based on supposedly protecting us from the events that happened in Boston and from 9-11. The government's surveillance powers are derived under the post-9-11 Patriot Act, renewed in 2006 and in 2011 by Congress, the people who are elected to protect our democracy and our homeland, not necessarily in that order. And when it comes to surveillance, all that's partisan melts into air. Here are Republicans Mike Rogers and Saxby Chambliss and Democrat Dianne Feinstein. This program was used to stop a terrorist attack in the United States. We know that. It is legal. It's been authorized by Congress. We have gathered significant information on bad guys, but only on bad guys over the years. It's to ferret this out before it happens. It's called protecting America. Of course, there have been congressional critics, too. Libertarians Ron and Rand Paul, Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, mainstream Democrats like Dick Durbin, Mark Udall, and Ron Wyden. But only legislators on the relevant committees knew much about the programs, and they weren't allowed to talk about them. When it comes to the Verizon revelations and later allegations about AT&T and Sprint, the government emphasizes that it doesn't listen to the calls or even knows the names of the callers. It's only metadata. That's information about the calls. But don't underestimate that data's revelatory power, says Shane Harris, author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. First off, we've never seen an order actually from the intelligence court that issues these authorities. And it is just sort of the breadth of it. I mean, if you read it, it does say all call detail records. I mean, it's essentially saying everything. By everything, we mean the phone number of every caller and recipient, the serial number of the phones, the time and duration of each phone call, and potentially the location of each of the participants when the call happened. That's right. The idea here is that if investigators have a telephone number, say, of a suspected or a known terrorist, and they want to find out who else that person may have been talking to in the U.S., they can take that number, run it against this metadatabase of phone numbers, and if they find hits and connections, they can start studying them. Now, if they want to find out the name of that person that the suspect has been talking to, they can go get a warrant to do that. So let's just say, hypothetically, that the government has been collecting since 2006 all the metadata from all the phone companies of all the customers in the United States. Why? It's so that if someone does pop up in the future, we've got a record that we can go back and trace his communications, his associations back as far as we can go. Now, the important other question with that, though, is 
is the only thing that they're doing with this information, comparing phone numbers of people who pop up on the counterterrorism radar? I don't think so. I mean, I've done a lot of reporting on this in my book, and what you find is that once the NSA has this information, they like to try and analyze it for all kinds of different things, doing pattern analysis and trying to graph it to figure out where the terrorist networks are. It's not just being used for this one purpose of comparing it to phone numbers. We're put in the position when we don't know what's being done with that information to sort of just trust that the government's using it appropriately. Senator Lindsey Graham was on Fox and Friends Thursday, and uh, he said it's not a big deal because it's only being used for one purpose. I don't think you're talking to terrorists. I know you're not. I'm no, I know I'm not, so we don't have anything to worry about. I suppose that it is true that most people in this country, I think, presume that, well, they don't have anything to hide, so fine, if it can help prevent a terrorist attack, then let them keep it. But what we do have to understand is that there is a history with these agencies of violating people's privacy, of overreach, and that we should have some more robust oversight, I think, of this process, other than senators coming out and saying, oh, we've known about this for years, there's nothing to worry about. On Twitter Thursday, a lot of reporters responded to this with a great big meh, saying that they figured this was going on. So why is this story eliciting such a strong reaction in some quarters and such a shrug in others? You know, I'm somebody who's written a book about this, and I was still stunned by it. I can't think of any piece of paper that has ever been leaked out of this court. There's maybe been one opinion ever released by it under the Freedom of Information Act. We're talking about the FISA court. Correct, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which mm -hmm. was set up to oversee this process of, of surveillance for intelligence and counterterrorism mm -hmm. purposes. We've just never seen the document, and when you sort of sit down and look at it and its breadth, it is, it is a bit breathtaking. This actually gives us a window now right into the heart of where these decisions are made, and I do think that that makes this an extraordinary revelation, even if we already knew, yeah, the government was collecting tons and tons of data about us. This is a really, really huge leak, and I presume it will be fully investigated. Shane, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks. Senior Washingtonian writer Shane Harris is the author of The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. Last December, as Congress was approving five more years of the FISA law allowing warrantless surveillance of Americans' overseas communications, Democratic Senator Ron Wyden addressed a mostly empty chamber. Colleagues, it is not real oversight when the United States Congress cannot get a yes or no answer to the question of whether an estimate currently exists as to whether law-abiding Americans have had their phone calls and emails swept up under the FISA law. Wyden's concern was focused mostly on Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which the government interpreted secretly to mean something more than it actually said. Section 215 of the Patriot Act, on its face, says that the government can obtain certain kinds of information using a court order if it can demonstrate that the information is relevant to an authorized foreign intelligence or international terrorism investigation. Elizabeth Goitine is the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we've just learned that the government and, in fact, a secret court both interpret this provision to allow the government to 
obtain any and all information, regardless of whether there's any relevance, as long as it agrees not to actually search the information until it has more of a reason to think that there's some wrongdoing going on. For years, the few senators who have actually known about these secret interpretations because they serve on the Intelligence Committee and so they're privy, like Ron Wyden, like Mark Udall, like Senator Feingold before them, some of those senators have raised an alarm and said there is an interpretation of the law that looks entirely different from what the law actually says. But until now, no one has known how the law is being interpreted and applied. So if under the government's interpretation, they can collect all this stuff, but they really can't search it unless they have a reason to believe that there is a threat, why are we worried? There's been a, a long and inglorious history of the government misusing information to target social activists and political enemies, and even on some occasion personal enemies. The Church Committee in the 1970s studied administrations going back to FDR and found that across administration that these abuses had been commonplace. We've seen some examples of it recently as well. In 2010, there was an inspector general report at the Department of Justice that found that the FBI was investigating anti-war protests. And there have been even more, I would say, instances recently of government officials misusing information for personal reasons, using information to stalk ex-girlfriends or, you know, find out things about their neighbors. You know, the government most of the time is using this information for all the right purposes, but there is a tremendous potential for abuse. What about the response of intelligence officials saying that this leak was reprehensible, that we've damaged our security? It's very hard to evaluate that claim. And every time the government is pressed for some explanation or example of an instance in which it's kept us safe, they say, well, we can't talk about that. In terms of the evidence that we see for the usefulness of data mining, and data mining is really the only possible reason to be gathering all of the phone records of all Americans Data mining has not been shown yet to be useful in identifying patterns of behavior that are correlated with would-be terrorists. As the president said on Friday, they're collecting the information. They won't have permission to actually use it unless they smell something fishy. One thing we don't know yet is the information itself being used to determine whether there's a reason to use it. And what I mean by that is, is the government running computer programs that will flag people they want to look at more closely, and then they say, now we have a reason to look at this person because the computer flagged it. That's sort of the equivalent of sending dogs into your house to sniff around for drugs, and then when they bark, saying, oh, well, now we can get a warrant. Well, if it weren't drugs and it were a bomb, would you feel the same way? I would. Now, if the government has a reason to think that there's a bomb there, then the government can get a warrant. Do we want to say that the government can walk into each and every one of our houses whenever it wants just to check because they know that somebody somewhere has a bomb? I was listening to the president's remarks today, and he kept saying, I'm glad we're having this conversation. This is what we need to be thinking about as a country. And I couldn't help but think... How can he say that he welcomes the conversation, that he wants to have a conversation, when the government did everything in its power to prevent this conversation from happening until this leak happened? All I need from you is a good 
conversation, conversation, cause it gives me sweet inspiration, inspiration, and to tell you I never felt this way before, I know there is some way today. There are some good guys who are fighting back against this idea that uh, Republicans and Democrats seem to agree to. Yeah, when Bush and Obama did all the wiretapping of citizens, whether it was the warrantless wiretapping under Bush or it's the expansive wiretapping of all U.S. citizens under uh, President Obama, it's a-okay. Well, some think that it's not okay. Al Gore sent out this tweet today. He said, in digital era, privacy must be a priority. Is it just me or secret blanket surveillance obscenely outrageous? Unfortunately, Vice President Gore, it's not just you, but you're among the very few. Washington agrees the American people must be spied upon. Now, Gore is absolutely consistent on this. Back in 2006, when Bush was doing it, he was just as outraged. He said, virtually compels the conclusion that the President of the United States has been breaking the law repeatedly and persistently, referring to the warrantless wiretapping program. Now, we have this very unique situation in America today where progressives and libertarians, some that are significant Democrats and some that are significant Republicans actually agree. Now, they are the minority in Washington or otherwise. They're not in the country. I th would bet that the they the, represent the majority of the country, but Washington doesn't give a damn about the majority of the country. But here is Rand Paul, a strange bedfellow for Al Gore to be sure. He thinks that this program is, quote, an astounding assault on the Constitution. He went on to say, after revelations that the Inter Internal Revenue Service targeted political dissidents and the Department of Justice seized reporters' phone records, it would appear that this administration has now sunk to a new low. He went on to say, if the President and Congress would obey the Fourth Amendment, we all swore to uphold this new shocking revelation that the government is now spying on citizens' phone data in mass would never have happened. He's right. Now, I know that there are a lot of Democratic loyalists who, the minute you mention Rand Paul, will say, How dare you? That's it. He must be wrong. Whichever side he's on, I'm going to be on the opposite side. Well, then you would not only be on the opposite side of Al Gore, maybe you're fine with that as long as, you know, your beloved Obama is not touched, but you'd also be on the side of very progressive senators like Ron Wyden and Mark Udall, who've been warning about this time and time again, saying if you knew what was happening, you'd be outraged. We can't tell you because it's classified. Now, Senator Jeff Merkley, another strong Democrat, joins in and says, this is an outrageous breach of Americans' rights. And then we go back to the Republicans. Now, look, I don't like agreeing with Jim Sensenbrenner, and I don't agree with him on almost anything. And he is one of the authors of the Patriot Act, and he was dead wrong about it at the time. Now, is he a hypocrite that all of a sudden... He's had a coming-to-Jesus moment when it's Obama who's doing it? Probably. But nonetheless, he's on the right side here. And he says, as the author of the Patriot Act, I am extremely troubled by the FBI's interpretation of this legislation. goes on to say, I do not believe the released FISA order is consistent with the requirements of the Patriot Act. How could the phone records of so many innocent Americans be relevant to an authorized investigation as required by the Act? He says, seizing phone records of millions of innocent people is excessive 
and un-American. And I don't care who's doing it for political reasons or not. All I care about is there's a tiny percentage of politicians who on this issue are on the right side and are fighting back against the establishment that says, no, 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 whether it's under Bush or it's under Obama, Americans must be spied upon. Now, will Jim Sensenbrenner later change his opinion? He's usually part of the establishment, so I wouldn't be surprised. Rand Paul did a heroic filibuster on the issue of drone strikes. Then later, during the Boston bombing, said, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, if they're criminals, of course we should do drone strikes inside the U.S. Apparently not understanding what his principles meant at all. So are they going to stay on board and actually defend the Constitution? I don't know. But I do know that today there aren't very many representatives or former politicians and representatives who are on the right side of this issue. And it's good to have somebody in Washington that's nominally on our side for the moment being. My apologies to Al Gore for putting him in the company of Sensenbrenner and Rand Paul. But that is the reality. And if they want to have any chance of success on this issue, they've got to stick together. We all have to stick together. We can't let our government do this to us. You want to make it stick together. Come on, come on, let's stick together. You know we made a vow not to leave one another never. And now you never miss your water, do you? Well, run dry. Come on now, baby, give our love a try and stick together. Greenwald's been getting a ton of shit. And what people have to remember is like, you know, like the New York Times was like, blogger Glenn Greenwald has a disagreement with right. the White House. And yeah. it's like, no, reporter Glenn Greenwald broke a story on the White House. Um, yeah, that's another it, important aspect of the story that I wanted to talk about, that there was this real rush by establishment media to discredit Glenn Greenwald, which they, was very unusual well, and, and, and you, sus suspicious. suspicious. Yeah. And, and what you guys need to know is they have hated Glenn Greenwald for a long time on many issues. Um most of it that he has called them all hacks. Uh, so yeah. they already don't like him. And they're threatened by new media because they are a dying form of media. They're a dying you know, print journalism group is dying. of dinosaur hacks. Yeah, and they don't like this new form of media, which they largely blame for them going under, even though there's a million reasons old media is going well, under. And the media is not just journalism, but it's like not kissing ass. You know what's funny? The new form of media closer... Uh, or represents the old form of media, which was we are here as a check on power, as opposed to we are here to read your press releases so you invite us to parties, yeah. which is essentially the David Gregory, Chuck Todd, anyone who goes to the fucking White House press correspondence. Yeah, like to me, the journalist I trust is the one who publishes this data, Google comes out and says, we had no knowledge of PRISM, and says, I don't believe you. Yeah. I don't trust the journalist that goes to White House parties. I trust the journalist that's in hiding. Yeah. That's and, like my, my, my go-to rule. And like to me, this was such a major story because it revealed a number of things. One, that the NSA still operates in tremendous secrecy. We have no idea what they're doing. We have no idea the scale of you know the data they're collecting, who they're spying on. We just have no idea. So that's an important aspect of it. Another important aspect is the war on whistleblowers. Because, man, when they find the person... 
if it's just one person or if it's a group of people who are spilling this information to the Guardian, it like what's, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really going to be bad. And, and they're coming after you. Yeah. And that's without, you know, fantasizing about it in a creepy way. Like some journalists who are like, man, they're going to come down harder on them than they did on Bradley Manning. You know, like it's just a fact that there is a war on whistleblowers and the U.S. government's going to hunt these people or person until the ends of the earth. Well, and think about how sad that is, right? So you have an administration that is violating the Constitution and spying on its citizens uh, using multinational corporations to do so, right? That should be the story. When that story breaks, people should be like, oh, we're going to go after these corporations or we're going to go after the person who authorized spying on American citizens. Instead, it's we're going to come down so hard on the person who tattled on us. Well, yeah, and then there's another aspect of this story, which is so many politicians knew about this. So many Congress representatives. We expected people to be like... And us, you know, Representative Wyden tried to get the the word out there when, like, years and years and years ago, he was trying to tell people there was a second Shadow Patriot Act that no one knows about. And this is going to come to public knowledge eventually, and when it does, it's going to blow people's minds. And this is it. Like, we have no idea the... I mean, this is one aspect of the Shadow Patriot Act. Who knows what else we don't know about? But this is so massive in itself, it's a major, major story. Because, I mean, look at how people are freaking out about this. This is only one aspect of it. Yeah, so two things. One, get ready for name-dropping. I was like, uh, Ali didn't let me tweet it because it was too name-droppy. But I was like, you know, I'm not going to get paranoid. They're not spying on me. And I literally looked at my email box, and my last two emails are from Jeremy Scahill and Glenn Greenwald. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, they're listening. They're listening. The good news is that means the NSA got my incoherent three-page blog or letter to Glenn written from my iPhone with spelling checks about going vegan. You know how hackers always encrypt their emails? Jamie doesn't have to do it because he's dyslexic. Like, I don't know what he's trying to tell me in emails. I'm like, I what? Just call me. Wait, so do you think that the NSA got my VN <laughs> email from Glenn and they're like, a code we can't break. <laughs> They're like calling in experts, like tech guys to come right. in and break this code. Vegan? vegan? What's a vegan? <laughs> oh, that's got to be code for terrorist. Um, so, <laughs> so the, but the, the a, a, a plea, instead of just trashing Obama bots about fantasizing that one day they're going to be friends with Barack Obama, which they're not, um, I would like to make a plea to you if you really care about liberal policies and you care about getting, you know, the best person in and do you want Republicans to become president and all that nonsense you always feed us. Do you, just like you say, well, do you want a, pres- a Republican? I'll ask you a question. Do you want Rand Paul to be the civil liberties guy? Because right now, I see a lot of right-wing sites, I see a lot of Alex Jones sites with points, and that's really scary. You don't want the Republicans to be the civil liberties guys, because guess what? They're not. It seemed like Rand Paul- They'll pretend to be while President Obama's in the White House. Yeah. And then as soon as a Republican gets in there, they'll forget about it. Right. But- that's my, so we don't want to be them. So we don't want to be them. We want to be like consistent. If it's bad when a President Bush did it, it's bad when a President Obama does it. Right. And also, like, I've literally seen people have to, like, back it up and be like, well, I trust my president because he's my president and we're friends. 
Um, but okay, so what about when Rand Paul or whoever becomes president? Do you want those powers that were set up by your president, Barack Obama? Now they have it. Right. It's not like they have to re-earn those powers. They're set No, now. and that's what's really dangerous because the expanding executive is there for whoever is president next. So yeah. these powers don't go away. It's incredible. It's not easy to give them these powers, but it's easier to give them these powers than to strip the powers from the president. Right. So, I mean, they, I mean, how much more power could the president possibly have? He can already extrajudicially extra assassinate American citizens on foreign land. He's done it. Um, he can detain people without trial. He's done it or charges. He's done it a lot. And the NSA can spy on whoever they want. So, I mean, you know, there really is not just expanded power for the executive, but expanded power for all kinds of intelligence services as well. If one good thing has come out of Barack Obama's ascension to the White House, it is that his rise has exposed the appalling backwardness of the black misleadership class, a petty and puny-minded cohort whose worldview is so narrow it can accommodate only one issue, the political fortunes of the first black president. Nothing else matters to these incredibly parochial political midgets, not issues of war and peace, nor the precarious state of planetary ecology, not even the economic well-being of the masses of black Americans, certainly not civil liberties, only Obama. Congressman James Clyburn is supposed to represent the interests of more than half a million South Carolinians, the majority of them black. One might expect a black congressman to have more than a passing interest in the Bill of Rights and protection of civil liberties. The revelation that Uncle Sam is building up a dossier on everyone with a telephone and a computer connection should be at least mildly upsetting to anyone that calls himself a black leader. But Congressman Clyburn has but one priority, to protect the image and legacy of Barack Obama. Rather than thank whistleblower Edward Snowden for revealing the massive scope of government spying under Obama, Congressman Clyburn sees a conspiracy against the president. Otherwise, how could a 30-year-old white boy who dropped out of high school get in a position to blow the whistle on the Obama administration? I haven't gotten to where I am in politics without relying on my gut, said Clyburn, and my gut tells me this is an effort to embarrass the president. Clyburn's gut isn't a bit queasy about the dramatic expansion of the national security state as long as Big Brother is black. What gives Clyburn angry bowels is the idea that a white guy with a GED had a secret security clearance. Where did he get the intellectual capacity to be allowed access to all this data, 
fumed Clyburn. The better question is, where did Snowden get the moral courage to go up against rapidly growing fascism with a black face? Julianne Malveaux is considered quite gifted intellectually. She's an economist, author, political commentator, and former president of historically black Bennett College in North Carolina. But she, too, seems more upset about young Snowden's fat salary at a law firm in Hawaii than about threats to everyone's civil liberties. Malvo sounded like Congressman Clyburn's echo. I'm still trying to figure out, she said, how a young white man with a GED was able to infiltrate both the respected firm Booz Allen and also the CIA to earn a wage of more than $200,000 a year and to know enough to whistleblow. Snowden learned computers at a community college and got his security clearance while training to be a Green Beret. He left the military after breaking both legs, but kept his clearance, and the rest is history, right up there with WikiLeaks and the Pentagon Papers. No doubt, white privilege did play a role in Snowden's gaining access to Big Brother's secrets. There have also been lots of times when white privilege was put to good use for the black liberation movement and in the cause of world peace. What makes certain black folks mad at Edward Snowden is that he embarrassed their president, which, for the black misleadership class, is the greatest crime imaginable. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. This day is the perfect day. Nothing in our way This is our time I know I'm holding in my arm Keep it safe and warm Just you and me now We are starting to get details on the extent of the NSA wiretapping, uh, data mining. There are a couple of different areas of coordination between the government and private industry that we're going to talk about, and details are still coming out, but we have some more information than we had in previous days. So first, you have the, the major phone networks that are working with the NSA. That includes Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, uh, no word yet of Boost Mobile, but a couple of the big ones anyway are providing information to the NSA. Now, they're very quick to point out that the actual content of the conversations is at least so far apparently not being recorded, but who's being called, the duration of calls, and things of that nature are being, uh, that information is being transmitted to the NSA. You know, they, they're so proud, and President Obama talking today, guys, about how proud he is that they don't listen in on the calls. But because of PRISM and Blarney, which are the Internet programs that they spy in on, what difference does it make? They can mm -hmm. look in on your emails. They can go to every website you've ever been on. They can literally see your emails as you're typing them, even if you don't send them. Oh, wow. you didn't listen in on my calls. <laughs> Are you not merciful? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I suspect that people would be a lot more concerned about the websites they're going to more than the conversation they're having with their uncle. Yeah. But, you know, so it's, it's a small not, consolation, not, I guess. Yeah, not much of a silver lining. There. Yeah. 
So uh, the one area that we have very little information on, unfortunately, is we do have constant references to credit card transactions being cataloged and being given to the NSA, but we don't yet know which, uh, which banks or which credit card companies are actually doing that gathering and the, the transmitting of the information. Uh, I expect that eventually that that will come out, but we don't currently know. So uh, now the scope of the program is we've got uh, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint. Uh, Sprint, et cetera. So that over 300 million Americans in just those companies, right? Mm -hmm. Then we've got uh, Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, AOL. And Skype. Skype. And PalTalk. The, the only major website, it appears, that is not being monitored, well, actually two of them, Twitter and the YoungTurks.com. And InfoWars, conceivably. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? <laughs> okay, but I it over. Yeah, that, that might be some issues. So, um, and then on top of that, you've got your credit card. So, what, did we leave anything out? <laughs> okay, now, uh, this is for, as I said, over 300 million Americans that are affected at least. Now, on PRISM, they claim, well, look, uh, we're not looking into U.S., uh, we're looking outside the U.S., so we're monitoring all those emails and websites, et cetera, for foreigners, but, but not necessarily yeah. for, you, I don't believe them for a second. Of course, it's exactly well, what they, they said. Well, they have a quote, actually, on that. So yeah. uh, James Clapper, the, the director of national intelligence, says uh, that the NSA did not, know, did not wittingly collect any type of data pertaining to millions of Americans. So I love the, the out he leaves him, himself there, that unwittingly, they might very well have done that. Now, I don't know that I ever heard wittingly used in a sentence. No, I haven't. I didn't yeah. know it existed. Uh, so here's what more from the Washington Post uh, story on that. This is how they break it down. Analysts who use the system from a web portal at Ford, Mead, Maryland, key in selectors, right, or search terms that are designed to produce at least 51% confidence in a target's foreignness. So they, based on, <laughs> based on they all talk the about sort of selectors that they like look that. at here, they determine, they find out if you're 51% confident that you're foreign. As the Washington Post points out, and this is a direct quote from the paper, it's not a very stringent test. Right. Yeah. So For example, if you happen to have a name like Jank Uger, mm -hmm. are you going to cross a 51% threshold on name alone? Easy. Easy. <laughs> okay. So then the training materials obtained by the Washington Post instruct new analysts to make quarterly reports of any accidental collection of U.S. content, but add that that's eh, nothing to worry about. Oh, well, it's always nothing to worry about. Don't worry about it. Okay, well, yeah. uh, forgive me for worrying. And by the way, the person who broke the original Verizon story works for The Guardian, which is a British paper, mm -hmm. and he lives in Brazil. His name is Glenn Greenwald. That is Apparently. outside the United States, yeah. so they can look into every single thing he's ever done yeah. online and go, oops, yeah, sorry. I love that, like, whether It's not, not even 51%. No, no, they can... They do because target he him. He's outside of, yeah, the United exactly, States. Yeah. He's foreign. Even though he's a U.S. citizen. Yeah. No, but it's awesome that apparently, like, we, we have the Constitution, which you're going to get to, but, like, apparently now the government spying on you can come down to whether or not you call it soccer or football. <laughs> that that <laughs> triggered the search right there. Yeah, make sure you spell football with two O's. And not a U, otherwise it'll be 51% for They When they make the mistake, they gather it up in a quarterly report. First of all, yeah. it's been going on so long that they already have quarterly reports. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, this is fascinating because, number one, we're collecting trillions of whatever unit we use mm -hmm. of data, right? And, and this is now beginning to, people are starting to call this big data, right? Uh, and then we collect it on foreigners when it comes to the Internet. We collect it on Americans when it comes to phone lines. And we unwittingly collect a ton of it online for Americans as well if we think they're 51% foreign, etc., etc. Now, I'm going to read to you the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. 
and let's see if this appears constitutional or perhaps unconstitutional. Let's make a judgment together. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, they violate at least four parts of the Fourth Amendment there, but the one I really want to focus on is the very end. Particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. When you search 300 million Americans, it doesn't appear that you're describing a person or place well, you'd like to search right, or seize. I'll legitimately play devil's advocate, because of course there is a counter-argument to that, mm -hmm. one which I don't really agree with, but nonetheless, that there are other parts of the Constitution about protecting the lives and well-being mm -hmm. of American citizens that are going to enter into conflict with that. Uh, and they would also say, we're just gathering this data, we're not looking at it. We're not, no one is, we don't have people yet digging in <laughs> and actually searching. We just gathered it for our help, they're just sitting there. I got it, but you can't, your argument has got to at some point be more than just laughing at that, because I don't think they have the, I don't think they're looking through my emails, I don't think they care. The question is, if you're not engaged in the kind of activity that they're looking for, do we really have anything to worry about? Because ultimately what we're worried about is when you communicate with your mistress, when you communicate on a website that would embarrass you, when you're trying to... Unpopular political opinions, unpopular, and then you run for Congress someday. Sure, right, right, right. Is that so let, let me address that in a couple of ways. The Fourth Amendment explains how the rest of the Constitution is constrained. So yeah, of course they're supposed to protect our life, liberty, etc., right? But they're supposed to do it within these constraints. And so you don't get to say, well, I had to protect your life and liberty, so I ignore the rest of the Constitution. Right. So that, that's gone. Right? I don't think it's gone because we have a war, as technology has changed, obviously they didn't know about computers. We can presume that when we talk about papers, that applies to the things that you're looking at on your computer, whether mm -hmm. on the internet or not. But also what's changed also is the ability to attack. The ability to strike uses this kind of technology also. It's been a lot of hacking lately in the news. <laughs> so yeah. But the, the, the need for the government to protect on a broader scale has also changed. The ability of enemies of the state, legitimate or not. Yeah. Well, let's talk well, about okay. the legitimate ones. Okay, so I find, me personally, I find that argument incredibly unpersuasive. Uh, and so I would say to the government official who says that, great, then uh, put together an amendment to amend the Constitution, and we'll have a conversation about that. Well, we are on money and politics, and you show me your amendment. Until then, this Fourth Amendment is enormously clear. Enormously clear. It says we're not going to go into your papers and effects, etc., unless we're targeting a specific person and we have a warrant on that person. You can't do a warrant as the FISA court did on 300 million people. <laughs> but mean, what have if they you not read the Fourth Amendment? That's crazy. What if you unwittingly do it, though? Oh, I yeah. see. And so there's two different aspects here to address what Ben's saying, and they're interesting points. So one, the minute you're gathering our records as to who we called, how long we called them for, etc., you're already, in essence, looking at that. You don't have to look at the phone call. That gathering of information is already unconstitutional. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. But what I'm curious about is, of course, that this is not, uh, the Fourth Amendment is not well, it may be news to many of the members of Congress who passed a law that makes this legal, mm -hmm. right? It may be unconstitutional, but it's legal. Nobody broke a law here, although I suspect right. there were probably some laws broken. But so 
I don't. I have little confidence. Certainly, I don't have any confidence. There are five members of the Supreme Court that are going to say that this violates mm -hmm. uh, the, the the Fourth Amendment. The question is, are we even at a lower court? Or suppose we suppose they change it. and They're like, okay, all federal judges get one vote, and it's going to be <laughs> you know the two hundred and fifty federal judges, or however many there are in the country, are going to determine this is this is constitutional. I, I sort of don't sense that, that that's going to win. So, well, okay, that's an interesting question. So this is an important part of the process because so sometimes people say, well, look, it's legal. And President Obama saying that all day today. I, I passed it. The Congress uh, knows about it and they're okay with it. And I went through one court, the FISA court, and they were okay with it. All three branches of government agree. I, and so sometimes people get confused. But the reality is that Congress passes and the president signs many laws that later the Supreme Court rules right. are unconstitutional. They, they, they passed, but they shouldn't have passed because yeah. they're unconstitutional, right? So it, ultimately, the arbiter of whether this is unconstitutional will have to be the Supreme Court if it ever gets there. And now the ACLU, and, among others, is saying, well, now that we know that we are, if you're a Verizon customer, etc., they, they're tracking you, right. then yeah. you have standing and you can go to court and say, I'm the person who's suing because I'm the person being tracked, which you couldn't have done before. Right, because we knew this was going on. That's why this was the least revelatory big news scoop that I can remember. I'm like, yeah, okay. Obviously, they've been doing it. I, I just, I was but 100%. we knew it. We knew it. I don't think the guy in Kansas knew it. I think if you told the guy in Kansas, hey, you know I that disagree. they're tracking all your phone calls, I disagree. He would be like, ah, it's a crazy conspiracy. I disagree theorist. completely. I really do, and I think that movies have a large thing to do with that. Is that we've seen it in television and mm -hmm. movies since the moment 24 came on the air, and you know, and there's something about as you watched how easily they were able to hone in on information and obviously some of that is unrealistic but it had a feel of like you just sense this doesn't feel like the, this is not so far out of bounds mm -hmm. of what we know they're capable of alright well let me reframe it this way because I understand what you're saying about popular culture if a week ago you had said on CNN I bet the government is tracking every single phone call in the country they would have laughed you out of the studio. You wouldn't have been able to come back on CNN. Say, oh, that's cra crazy. No, you don't have. No, you don't know that. That sounds crazy. That's conspiratorial. A little, but you're framing the argument a little bit with the use of the word tracking. Like, again, mm -hmm. you said. But they are tracking. They're literally uh, tracking. Well, I mean, storing. Storing. Like, that they're yeah. gathering, that, they're that they have data. That they Could the NSA know instantly every phone call I've made over the last six years, how long it was, and to who it was, and to whom it was? I would say. Yeah, I think they could. Yeah. So, if that's I'm, tracking, okay. Yeah, I, I'm going to call that tracking. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. so what, one last thing to answer Ben's question, which is which way the Supreme Court will go. I actually, I, I believe they will rule it unconstitutional. It's possible. A, and literally, as I said the words, I don't think they will. I thought, okay, I still don't think they will. But they might. They yeah. might. So Scalia uh, surprised people earlier yeah. in the week by saying that the DNA testing that they do on people who have been arrested is unconstitutional because that violates the Fourth Amendment. If he thinks the DNA testing on a guy who's already been arrested is unconstitutional, wait till he gets a load of this. And as I read the text of it there, I thought it's the most unconstitutional thing I've ever seen. It violates literally four different parts of a very short amendment. And so I think that there's some chance that some of the conservatives might even look at that and go, yeah. I don't think we should be well, doing that. It's entirely possible, as I'm now backtracking completely, because you know full well, <laughs> as we hear from Bill O'Reilly later in the show, mm -hmm. plenty of conservatives are reacting to it 
aggressively. Yeah. You know who might shock the world and rule this unconstitutional? Clarence Thomas. Anybody who thinks, <laughs> anybody who's genuinely obsessed with a concern about big, broad government. And I'll tell should. you what, yeah, you, should. you think Clarence Thomas hasn't been on the wrong kind of websites? <laughs> you remember his confirmation hearings? Totally. You yes. think that he wants the government knowing what websites he's been on, wittingly or unwittingly? My guess is Clarence Thomas declares it unconstitutional. Yeah. All right, so we'll see, we'll see. But on its face, and then we had the conversation here, devil's advocate, etc., you can make your own call, but read it again and again. To me, it seems obviously massively unconstitutional. With what? Now, the two major secrets that are no longer secret as of this week. Leaks. Strange they came out in the same time, or almost the same time. One was Wednesday in the Guardian newspaper in Britain. The other was uh, Friday in the Washington Post. The uh, Guardian leak dealt with a court order issued in April that Verizon turn over all metadata, that is to say, phone numbers called from, phone numbers called to, location of the phones, the data that, that uh, as one of the defenders of this policy said today, appears on your phone bill. But as far as I know, the phone company can't put me in jail. Yet, uh, so this data being turned over to the National Security Agency, the super-secret NSA, and Friday's release was about PRISM, P-R-I-S-M, the data-gathering tool that was used to scoop up email chats, video, e uh, e uh, live chats from Internet service providers by the self-same NSA. Now, the, uh, the, the, defense, the defenses of these, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, it's five minutes in again. When you decide that, a ragtag group of other militants or foreign fighters is um, is the is the uh, enemy in a war, a war against the superpower of the world. Then uh, you know it's wartime, and wartime stuff happens. Like Patriot Acts get passed by a Congress that doesn't even read them before they vote yay. So anyway, here we are. Defenders of these programs have said, among other things, that uh, oh, uh, the PRISM program helped to uh, foil the New York subway plot. But uh, Ben Smith in BuzzFeed says that that, uh, quoting British and American legal documents from 2010 and 2011, they appear to contradict the claim that PRISM was responsible for uh, blowing that plot. This, according to Smith, appears to be the latest in a long line of attempts to defend secret programs by making, at best, misleading claims that they were central to stopping terror plots. The court documents don't exclude the possibility that PRISM was somehow employed in the Zazi case. Zazi was the alleged 
plotter of the uh, New York City subway bombing that didn't happen. The documents show that old-fashioned police work, not data mining, was the tool that led counterterrorism agents to arrest Zazi. The public documents confirm doubts raised by the blogger Marcy Wheeler and the Associated Press's Adam Goldman and call into question the defense of PRISM first floated and uh, by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers, who said PRISM had stopped a key, key terror plot. He said it again this morning on the Sunday Yak shows. When they say that the the listening in, or the, the gathering, sorry, the gathering of data, they weren't listening, was legal... Who's listening? I'm not. Um, the law is, in question is the Protect America Act, which was uh, passed to uh, fill some holes in the Patriot Act. It requires only that executive branch officials certify that there are reasonable procedures in place for ensuring that surveillance, quote, concerns, unquote, persons located outside the United States, and that foreign intelligence is a, quote, significant purpose of the program, unquote. This is because... They're not supposed to be listening in on us. So if they just say that, then they can listen in on whoever they want, whomever they want to. A single certification could cover a broad program intercepting the communications of numerous individuals. There is no requirement for judicial review of individual surveillance targets within a certified program. Civil liberties groups warned that the vague requirements of the law and lack of oversight would give the government a green light to seek indiscriminate access to the private communications of Americans. They predicted the government would claim they needed unfettered access to domestic communications to be sure they'd gotten all relevant information about suspected terrorists. It now appears, according to the Washington Post, this is exactly what the government did. The report by Barton Gelman in Friday's Post suggests that the moment the PAA was the law of the land, the NSA started using it to obtain unfettered access to the servers of the nation's leading online services. Your Microsofts, your Apples, your Googles, your Facebooks. To comply with the government, sorry, to comply with the requirement that the government not target Americans, PRISM searches are reportedly, quote, designed to produce at least 51% confidence in a target's foreignness, unquote. That's the lowest conceivable standard. I got that much foreignness in me. P PRISM training manuals reportedly instruct users that, uh, users at the NSA, that is, that if searches happen to turn up the private information of Americans, unquote, it's nothing, this is a quote, it's nothing to worry about. And uh, this report from the Post adds that few members of Congress realized the breadth of the surveillance powers they were approving when they passed this law. Uh, that may be deliberate. That's called deniability when the leaks finally happen. Well, they didn't tell us. Meanwhile, all this... And the U.S. is saying, the government is saying, metadata, it's just phone numbers and times. It's, it's nothing personal. They can't, they're not listening to your conversations. So let's hop in the time machine, time machine and go back to 2007 when the Bush administration was doing this. And then Senator Joseph Biden was appearing on the then CBS morning program with the then anchor, Harry Smith. So it's a little bit like what would happen if the banks turned over all your checking records without your name, but gave the checking account number and every single purchase you made and pattern of your behavior, and then be, then you were told, don't worry, they, that's, that's not an invasion of your privacy. Well, the president, though, said uh, yesterday, he said, we're not listening to the phone calls, we're just looking for patterns. 
Harry, I don't have to listen to your phone calls and know what you're doing. If I know every single phone call you made, I'm able to determine every single person you talk to, I can get a pattern about your life that is very, very intrusive. And the real question here is, what do they do with this information that they collect that does not have anything to do with Al-Qaeda? By the way, that, that's Joe Biden back when he cared. By the way, last time I looked, the FBI had tracked two of the 9-11 terrorists. They just didn't, there just wasn't communication between the FBI and the CIA and uh, other enforcement arms. So uh, to fix that, they got to listen in on us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So for the past two episodes, I've been asking the question, asking people to call into the voicemail line with a response to the question, what do you like about the race that you are? Whatever race that is, what do you like about it? And you know, just give me your thoughts on that. I'm asking that in order to to not so much run an experiment, but an exercise. I want to do a little exercise. And this uh, idea came to me by reading about this exact exercise in a book called uh, White Like Me by Tim Wise, excellent writer. Uh, his, uh, interviews of his have been featured on the show as well, speeches of his. And so I, what I'm going to do is actually just read because he says it better than I could. So I'm just going to read from the book and sort of explain the uh, the exercise as we go. So he's telling the story of the first the first time he was ever in a group being sort of taught about anti-racism and he was he and the group were all asked what they liked about being whatever they were racially speaking and he says for most whites it was a question to which we had never given much thought. Hey Jay, this is Mike from Lexington, Kentucky. What do I like most about my race? The fact that I never have to think about it. In fact, I didn't even have to think about it until you asked the question. Looks of confusion spread across most of our faces as we struggled to find an answer. Hey, Jay, it's Ty from you, Arizona. So I don't know. I don't think that there is anything in particular that I like about being a white guy. I think it's just I am who I am, and I've never really thought about it. Meanwhile, people of color came up with a formidable list almost immediately. They liked the strength of their families. Hey, Jay, this is Aaron. My family always taught me that I was no different than any other person, no matter what their race was. It's because of this that I love my race, although I am not completely sure what it is. The camaraderie, the music. Hey, Jay, my name is Pablo. Um, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm, I was born in Puerto Rico. I moved to the United States when I was eight years old. I've been here ever since. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a bilingual household. Um, music was a big part of my childhood. The culture. When you think about your race, what people like about the race usually results to cultural identity. The rhythms, the customs. I'm proud that I come from a blending of many different cultures. I'm thankful that my family still celebrates all these cultures with different celebrations and holidays. Their color. Hi, Jay. This is Ben from Los Angeles. I don't take offense when somebody asks me my nationality. I am brown, and I mean really dark down brown. What I am proud of and that's the question. What I am proud of is that I'm not white. That's about it. And they mentioned most prominently 
the perseverance of their ancestors in the face of great odds. When it was our turn, we finally came up with a list, and it was the same one offered pretty much every time I asked the question to white folks around the country. Hi Jay, Chuck, Salt Lake City. I like feeling secure because of my race. Hey Jay, this is Jake in Iowa. If I were ever to go to uh, in front of a judge, I have a much better chance of getting a, the, like the, the, say the sentence for the crime is five to ten. I'm more likely to get the five. I got a pretty white name, so when I send a job application, I know it has a better chance of getting a call back. I'm about four times less likely to get busted for weed than a black person or a other minority. Uh, hey, this is Philip from North Carolina. For me, I think it's believing that I could do anything I wanted to uh, when I was growing up, that, that the possibilities were endless. Hello, my name is Joel. I'm in Fresno, California. The thing about my race is that uh, I don't have to defend it. Hi, this is Steve. I'm from Richmond, California, but calling from uh, elsewhere in the USA. Thought about it long and hard, and I came up uh, with a lot of small answers, but they all boiled down to one thing. They were white privilege. Things are easy for me that are not easy for people of other skin complexions, other cultures. We like not being followed around in stores on suspicion of being shoplifters. We like the fact that we're not presumed out of place on a college campus or in a high-ranking job. We like the fact that we don't have to constantly overcome negative stereotypes about intelligence, morality, honesty, or work ethic, the way people of color so often do. Once finished, we began to examine the lists offered by both sides. The contrast was striking. Looking at the items mentioned by people of color, one couldn't miss the fact that all of the attributes listed were actually about personal strength or qualities possessed by the participants and in which they took real pride. The list was tangible and meaningful. The white list was quite different. Staring at the entries, it was impossible to miss that none of what we liked about being white had anything to do with us. None of it had to do with internal qualities of character or fortitude. Rather, every response had to do less with what we liked about being white than what we liked about not being a person of color. We were defining ourselves by a negative, providing ourselves with an identity rooted in the relative oppression of others, without which we would have had nothing to say. Hey Jay, this is Jeff. I don't really know how to answer that question. I don't know what to compare it to. I've never been black. I've never been Asian or Hispanic. All I know is me. I know being white obviously has its benefits, but I don't know how one can really thoughtfully answer it without experiencing the other side. It's like asking what one's favorite food is without having tasted a number of different types of foods. Without a system of racial domination and subordination, we would have been able to offer no meaningful response to the question. As became clear in that moment, inequality and privilege were the only real components of whiteness. Without racial privilege, there is no whiteness, and without whiteness, there is no racial privilege. Being white means to be advantaged relative to people of color, and pretty much only that. Our answers had laid bare the truth about white privilege. In order to access it, one first had to give up all the meaningful cultural, personal, and communal attributes that had once kept our peoples alive in Europe and during our journeys here. 
After all, we had come from families that once had the kinds of qualities we now were seeing listed before us by people of color. We had had customs, traditions, music, culture, and style, things to be celebrated and passed down to future generations. Even more, we had come from resistance cultures. Most Europeans who came had been the losers of their respective societies, since the winners rarely felt the need to hop on a boat and leave where they were. And these resistance cultures had been steeped in the notion of resisting injustice and of achieving solidarity. But to become white required that those things be sublimated to a new social reality in which resistance was not the point. To become the power structure was to view the tradition of resistance with suspicion and contempt. So while folks of color in the room would have dearly loved to be able to claim themselves the privileges filling the white folks' pages on the flip chart, we would have just as dearly loved to be able to claim for ourselves even one of the meaningful qualities mentioned by people of color, but we couldn't. To define yourself by what you're not is a pathetic and heartbreaking thing. It is to stand bare before a culture that has stolen your birthright, or rather, convinced you to give it up. And the costs are formidable, beginning with the emptiness whites often feel when confronted by multiculturalism and the connectedness of people of color to their heritages. The emptiness gets filled up by privilege and ultimately forces us to become dependent on it, forcing me to wonder just how healthy the arrangement is in the long run, despite the advantages it provides. Okay, so that's it for the book. Uh, for a moment... And now if you're white like me, there's a really good chance that you're hearing a completely brand new perspective on the results of institutional racism that had never occurred to you before. And you, like I, you know, until hearing this, probably thought that racism was, you know, something worth fighting against just because it was wrong. And, you know, you want to be an ally to those who are actually oppressed by racism. But I don't know about you. I had no idea how much I personally and, you know, people like me had lost because of it. And so to, to wrap up with another real quick quote from the book, he says, People of color don't owe us gratitude when we speak out against racism. They don't owe us a pat on the back. And if all they do is respond to our efforts with a terse about time, that's fine. Challenging racism and white supremacy is what we should be doing. And resistance is what we need to do for us. So there you go. That is what flipped my world on its head uh, last week when I read it. And, you know, just to, to clarify a little further, you know, obviously fighting racism is about, you know, being a good ally and, and you know, fighting for what's right just because it's right. But, you know, the, the, the worst mistake one can make is to think that, you know, we're fighting racism to protect those who are being oppressed by it to help those who are being oppressed by it because maybe they aren't able to help themselves and and so on you know it, it's it's important to do it just because it's right and also to recognize that it hurts our own community you know it, it's it's sort of a sickness in white culture that you know we we need to get rid of it for our own sake and and doing it in that way and and coming at it from that angle you know, removes any suspicion that, that may be there that we're not doing it for the right reasons or, you know, as, uh, you know, as, as so many white missionaries throughout the centuries ha have done, you know, gone into communities of people of color all over the world, told them, I have the answer for you, let me fix your life, and then things don't necessarily work out too well. So, you know, if there's a sp suspicion built up there in communities of color, 
from white people coming in trying to say, you know, let me help you, that's perfectly reasonable. And, and so coming at it from a, a brand new angle, just shed light on, on the subject like I had no idea was coming. Uh, it took me completely by surprise, and I knew immediately I had to share it with you. So that is it for today. I, I hope you appreciated all this as much as I did when I came across it. Of course, I can't take any of the credit for this, but check out Tim Wise if you're interested. The book, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, that I was reading from is called White Like Me third edition actually so thanks to everyone for listening if you're not already subscribed to the show there are lots of ways to do it uh, get the show on itunes or the standard rss feed or any of the great smartphone apps including stitcher and there's even a best of left app made specifically for the show uh, built for iphone and android thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program that is absolutely how the show survives stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on facebook and twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all the sources and music Music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought now black and Oh